Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you happening across our broadcast, for the very first time, is our daily journey through God's Word. One question of the heart at a time. If you'd like to get in on it with a question relating to the Bible or how you can better relate the Bible, maybe to those who are on the outside looking in, had a relationship with God, maybe uh, you'd like to be able to relate the Bible to the current issues that you're facing in your life. But learning how to apply God's Word, letting it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Hey, we would love for you to join us on the broadcast today. Uh, we can't really uh, go anywhere without your questions. We don't sit down and try to pre-plan out what we're going to talk about on a, an edition of A Reason for Hope. It's all up to you. Uh, any question about the Bible, Bible prophecy, the events of today, even the events of tomorrow, uh, we'll be more than happy to uh, explore those issues with you as our broadcast unfolds. Uh, if you'd like to get questions to us, there's a number of different avenues you can do uh, use to do that. Uh, if you are listening to us uh, on one of our radio broadcasts, uh, you can send us questions at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope at gmail.com is our email address. That's probably the most efficient way to get your questions to us, and we check it on a regular basis. So uh, we'll look forward to uh, hearing from you uh, through that particular avenue. If uh, you'd like to join us on, uh, say, the uh, YouTube site, you can join us live there uh, on YouTube. Look for A Reason for Hope. You can jump on in. Uh, like us, subscribe us there, and uh, join the comment corner we have. We're also available for you on Facebook. So if you'd like to uh, join us on that particular platform, just look for A Reason for Hope, and you can uh, join us there. And if uh, you would like to go directly to the main source, go to calvarychristianfellowshipoftucson.com, click on our Watch Live feature, and you can uh, watch us directly there. And, of course, on each of those sites, we have... Uh, comment corners available for you where you can get your questions in. We would uh, love uh, to uh, be able to uh, answer any question in your heart and your mind. Only standard we have for the questions that we answer here on the broadcast. Uh, make sure that it's a sincere question, and if you're looking for an answer straight from the Scriptures, we'll be more than happy to uh, take it on. Uh, joined here by my right-hand protege, all around good guy, Sean Richards. Uh, Sean, would you like to open us up in a word of prayer? Be happy to. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be available. Allow your word to be spoken and understood by those who are in attendance. Oh, my Father and I, with your spirit, and enable us to share not only your words, but your heart. Thank you that we have the honor of being here, and we ask that you would be glorified through the broadcast and everything we do. In your name, amen. Amen. All right, starting us off, um, we received a question by email from Bob, who wants to know about the first chapter of Zechariah and to essentially... Uh, questions parsed out into three. Uh, he wants to know, first of all, in verses 11 through 12, God mentions choosing Jerusalem. Why did he do that? 
The second is regarding the significance of verses 7 through 17, who is being discussed there regarding the beings that went to and fro throughout the earth and the significance of their horses being red, sorrel, which is like orangish yellow, and white on their horses. Some also would say they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Does that mean everyone on the earth at this time is at peace without any conflict or war happening? Let me start with that one. Uh, No, Bob, that's not what's being referred to. The prophet Zechariah at the start of the book and continuing on in verse 7 of the vision sets the time and date for us during the reign of King Darius, the Mede. Now, What's important about that is that that was around the time that Israel had already returned from their captivity in Babylon, and what's directly being supervised was what was relevant to Zechariah, and that was the rebuilding of the temple. Zechariah was contemporaneous. He was writing at the same time as the prophet Haggai, and we're told that they were short on manpower and resources. They were given permission, of course, to rebuild, but it was not an easy task. That's what these prophets were raised up to do, to encourage them that God would see them through this work. We also need to note that uh, when we're given this vision, Zechariah was very good about admitting when he didn't know something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah when he uh, was shown something and they say, do you understand the meaning of this? He says over and over again, I have no idea what that is. And they go on to explain it to him. Now, if the explanation doesn't explain everything, then it's probably because what wasn't explained didn't have to be. It wasn't relevant to the conversation or it's already been explained before. Since the colors of these horses are speculated from here to the moon and back, we aren't actually given direct scriptural significance of these things until much later in the Bible. That's when explanations are relevant. They would say, oh, are these the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but apparently only three, and they left out the green one? No, when we're referring to those horsemen, they had a direct significance and reference to scripture. These horses were simply that color. (laughs) And I don't think there's any further need for that. What we are told about them, though, is that they go to and fro throughout the earth, and they give a report to the angel of the Lord. We'll clarify his identity in a second, but that was the point being made. Uh, When we make the association, going to and fro throughout the earth, that's familiar to those who have read Job, and the speculation is stated, are these demons? The answer, of course, is no. Uh, When we see Satan going to and fro throughout the earth, the adversary, the accuser, that is relevant, not just in what he was doing, but what he did with those travels. He was reminded of his servant Job, God's servant, and uh, told that he hates wickedness, loves righteousness, and uh, Satan started to accuse him, true to his name. He said, well, that's just because you've blessed him so much. Right. But as far as the accuser's role and job, these riders on these horses aren't, of course, there to accuse anybody. They were asked, what is going on? And they tell him, nothing. It's quiet. Now, what is quiet? what Zechariah was talking about, speaking to the people of Israel, conditions in his land. Now, you read the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, you know they had a a tumultuous start, but we're at a lull at this point. That's what the vision is meant to identify. Things have quieted down. I don't think we have to take anything further than that. But when we're talking about the other significance of this, The question about uh, there being more angels here besides the angel of the Lord. Remember what the word angel means. It means messenger. The angel of the Lord is identified as Jesus within further context. We'll talk about that more in a second. But this all brings us back to verses 11 through 12. 
God identifies his people as chosen. Why did he choose them? And the answer, ironically, is not in Zechariah towards the end of the Old Testament, but in the book of Deuteronomy, almost to the front of the Old. Yeah, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6 says, uh, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you are the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you, because he would keep his oath, which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the house of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Uh, In essence, uh, the reason that God chose Israel is because they were small, they were weak, but in the hands of an almighty God, Uh, they would uh, literally be the straw that stirs the drink for the whole world. Uh, As far as Jerusalem itself is concerned, why God chose that? Well, again, these are God's purposes. Uh, The uh, city that he chose was uh, near and dear to the heart of King David, wrote many psalms about it. But uh, why not uh, Beersheba? Uh, You know, why not uh, a city up in Galilee? Uh, Jerusalem was uh, a pretty strategic place, pretty central place as far as Israel is concerned, but it, it really was sort of off the beaten path as far as the main trade routes go and, and so on. It was a Jebusite uh, city that was built on top of a mountain now, and it was connected, by the way, to another spring. Now, those are great things, but you have to wonder what's so special because there are other mountaintop cities. There are also other mountains. We can talk about the fortress where Elijah uh, had his standoff with the prophets of Baal. You mentioned Galilee, where they have... Mount Carmel, yeah. yeah, They can talk about all those other things, but noting it's not because there's something to offer. You know, the only thing that I could say that probably ties into it is, you know, the old law first mentioned, Jerusalem comes on the scene uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham has his encounter with uh, the very fascinating individual, Melchizedek, who was called... Uh, not only the king of peace, but the king of Salem, which was a name for Jerusalem. As you mentioned, it was a Jebusite city at that time. But apparently this fellow Melchizedek um, knew a thing or two about the true and living God. Uh, He was called not only the king of righteousness, but also the the, uh, king of peace. Uh, He was not only a king, but he was also a priest at that time. And Abraham was apparently so impressed with him that he gave to him a tenth of the spoils. Well, you can go on into the book of Hebrews chapter 6 and 7 to explore the parallels uh, between Melchizedek and Jesus himself. I believe that Melchizedek was a strong type of Jesus, but was not a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I think it all turns on very one key word there in the book of Hebrews, who is made like the Son of God. But because uh, you see such an outstanding individual, it does appear that uh, from almost the uh, get-go of God's uh, redemptive purposes, God had his eyes on Jerusalem. For uh, what reason? We're not told. Probably not a good idea to speculate uh, beyond all of that. Uh, But uh, suffice it to say, it's almost a uh, nod uh, to the work that God did even from the very beginning, uh, revealing his truth from that particular place. Yeah, let us know if that helps you out, Bob. But just to recap from the start, why did God choose Israel? Because he had something to offer. He made promises he would keep them, not because they had something to offer. Just like us. (laughs) Trends follow. Are there more angels here than the angel of the Lord? Not in the sense we think. Angel just means messenger. It's a job description, not a genus. These heavenly creatures, however, were sent out to report to God. So they wouldn't be angels or messengers. They'd be reporters. Uh, They didn't deliver any message. They brought 
brought one back. The third question in regard to the significance of the vision, just stick to what was explained that's relevant to the vision. It's not saying there was world peace at this time in history. It was saying that things were calm in regards to the construction of the temple. What they were reporting on was what Zechariah was reporting on. That's what began, and that's what was being talked about in the date given to us in the reign of Darius the Mede. A uh, question from Mike who wants to know, what is the meaning of when Jesus said, this is Luke 9 and verse 62, uh, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, for Old Testament students, this is going to sound extremely familiar, but let's first start with the context of why Jesus brought it up. Yeah, let's let's go with the near context here. Uh, Jesus is uh, hitting on all cylinders. Uh, in his ministry, we are told in verse 57 of Luke chapter 9, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then he follows up by saying, uh, he said to another, Jesus taking the initiative, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Another said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, here we see three encounters on the road. Uh, two individuals coming to Jesus with, uh, in a sense, good intentions, wanting to follow him, an enthusiastic person saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. Uh, almost reminiscent of the kind of bravado that we saw from Peter and the disciples saying they would never betray Jesus on the night that uh, he was betrayed. And lo and behold, they wrote checks with their lips, their lives couldn't cash. Well, Jesus was cautioning him, you know, if uh, you think that following me is going to lead you to a Davidic palace, uh, you might be up for something very different in your experience. In fact, Jesus said, look at uh, where I'm living right now. I don't live in a mansion. I don't uh, even have a roof over my head at this particular point. I don't own property. I have nowhere to lay my head. Are you willing to follow me even if it results in hardship and inconvenience? Then he said to another one, follow me. He took that initiative. He said, let me first go and bury my father. He said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Some will say, well, Jesus was being kind of harsh with this guy. I mean, not allowing him to go to his dad's funeral. Well, it wasn't as if his dad was dead at this point. In other words, what he was saying is, once my dad dies and I get my share of the inheritance, then I will be able to follow you. And, uh, you know, it's uh, reminiscent of uh, some encounters I've had with people who say, oh, yeah, you know, I've, I'm working on this business deal and I want to build up this business so it's self-sufficient. And then I can go to the church and be a $1 man. You know, they can just pay me a dollar a year and, and, and I can serve the Lord. Well, the thing I found out about some of these $1 men uh, is that uh, it always seems like there's a dollar more they need to make before they can make that commitment. Uh, if you're waiting for perfect conditions to follow the Lord, you're going to wait for perfect conditions to follow the Lord. And the Lord just said, man, follow me. You know, again, don't wait for everything to be all set and comfortable before that happens. And then another said, Lord, I will follow you. In other words, he's saying, I'm ready to go. But first, let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Now, you mentioned, Sean, that this is referring back to an Old Testament uh, situation. What was that? Well, in the context of discipleship, 
the prophet Elijah. This is in the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. Essentially, after the fallout at Mount Carmel, he saw that it didn't take as far as the hearts and minds of his nation. He got Bummer. suicidal <laughs> and just wanted to throw in the towel. And immediately after uh, this encounter, God reminds him, hey, I have 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and not every mouth uh, has not kissed him, meaning they haven't basically sworn their allegiance to this false god. Then in verse 19 we read, So he, that is the prophet Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who is plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the twelve. So note, he is plowing a field. Here's where the theme gets set up. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. Now note, he wasn't like playing a prank, like, oh, you can't see or anything. The prophet's mantle was literally like his policeman's badge. It was how you would recognize somebody. Right. They didn't have like circulated portraits and paintings. This is kind of a serape in in a sense. Yeah, but you would recognize someone by their clothing. If the, you know, a wealthy person came to town, they'd come in wearing, you know, scarlet, expensive robes, maybe some jewelry. You'd say, oh, this is important based off of how they dressed. Well, if someone had a sash, they'd be a priest. If they had a crown, they'd be a king. If you had a mantle like this uh, was being given to Elisha, that marked him out as a prophet. And what was essentially being done, and Elijah understood it, was um, uh, he he threw his mantle on him. Then in verse 20 it says, and he said, please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. So he understands, I'm being called to be a disciple of you here. You're marking me out as a successor. But what's interesting is how Elijah responds. He says to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? So he essentially lays out this hypothetical, like, do whatever you want. It's not as if I did anything, right? Yeah. No, he's obviously giving him the chance to make his decisions. But notice how Elijah follows through on his, not delay, but his request. So Elijah turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, and slaughtered them, and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment, and gave it to the people, and they ate. So essentially, he sold and distributed all of his farm equipment. Why would you do that? Well, if you were still intending to be a farmer, that would be a poor investment. But if you were intending from that time onward to be a prophet, that would be wise, because you don't want to leave the, uh, I guess, oxen left to starve back at home. Yeah, kind of burn the boats, if you will. So, yeah. And then it says, then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. So notice, he, we don't have any reports of him going back to say goodbye to his family. He literally just liquidates all of his assets and commits fully to Elijah. Now, that's what theme Jesus is referencing when he is given this call for people to follow him. He says, be my disciple. And then they say, well, uh, can I say goodbye to my family? <laughs> I remember another individual in history who said the same thing. Do you remember the plow? Yeah. Did, uh, what did he do with that? Yeah. That's what's kept in mind, Mike. Let us know if that helps you out. Yeah, you know, and it raises a really important question. Is following Jesus really worth it in a sense? Is it worth giving up everything to follow him? Is it worth leaving uh, your old life behind to become a believer? Well, a couple answers to that question. First of all, the minute you become a born-again Christian, the Bible says whether you realize it, recognize it or not, that's what's happened. Uh, in the book of Second Corinthians chapter 5, we are told, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So the moment we come to faith in Christ, understand something, whether we grasp it immediately or not, God begins a process 
uh, that we could call sanctification. Uh, it, it's the process whereby we are conformed in the image of Jesus. And a big part of that process is God taking our, our hands and prying them finger at a time off of all the things that we've gotten used to trusting in this world. As such, uh, for some people, boy, the minute they receive the Lord, they just go full on for him. And it, it's a wonderful experience. For others, it's that process of learning to let go of things so we can embrace the life that Jesus has for us. But the standard operating procedure that God has in the life of every believer is to eventually leave behind the things that we leaned on, trusted in, and learn to lean on Jesus alone because it really only makes sense. And when people say, does it make sense to follow Jesus as opposed to leaning on the other things of this world? Well, the one thing I've discovered down through time is this, Jesus is the only one who has never let me down in this life. I've trusted in things, I've trusted in people, I've trusted in churches, I've trusted in institutions, I've trusted in politicians. All of them have let me down at one time or another. I've let me down on a regular occasion. But Jesus Christ will never let you down. He will never leave you and never forsake you. The more you draw close to Jesus, you discover that he is good through and through, Uh, that he doesn't have any ulterior motives as far as his work within our lives, and that uh, even though we sometimes do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is always there with us, uh, causing even the most uh, troubling circumstances we go through in our lives to turn around as opportunities to uh, build faith uh, and uh, to have a life of of not just significance in the here and now, but uh, significance in the there and then. His love, is everlasting. His faithfulness endures to all generations. He is the one that's worth leaving everything behind to have. And and so if we can let go of things that are only going to drag us down, only going to disappoint, and embrace the one who will never let us down, whose faithfulness endures to all generations, uh, I think that's a, a pretty good deal. Uh, the other thing that you discover is Uh, If you put your hand at the plow and look back, uh, you're going to end up making a pretty big mess out of the property that you're trying to plow. You're going to be here and there and weaving about and so on. And in uh, the Middle East, arable land was always at a premium. You wanted to make the most of it. So by following Jesus wholeheartedly, Mike, uh, that's how we get the most out of this life. Uh, It is a process, though, and uh, sometimes God has to work on things to get us to uh, let go of things, but uh, he certainly will. And it's definitely worthwhile. Like Elisha discovered by following Elijah, no regrets in that decision. What Jesus was saying is there's someone even greater than Elijah here. And it would probably be a really good idea for you uh, not even to go back and say bye to the people at home, almost implying that this man saw Jesus just as a prophet, a great prophet like Elijah, but didn't really fully understand the implications that Jesus was God in human flesh. Uh, What he was saying is, um, you need to realize I'm not one of many good prophets. Uh, I'm the one who inspired the prophets. I'm the God they spoke of. All right. A question from Mac who wants to know, is The Beat by Alan Parr on YouTube a good Bible teaching channel? Uh, Well, Mac, uh, obviously when it comes to discernment, it's always good to, I guess, practice uh, whenever and wherever you can. Uh, BEAT, or The BEAT, his channel is uh, an acronym, Bible Encouragement and Truth. Um, He has a series of videos that uh, seem to be very well engaged and uh, very 
very well choreographed and uh, artistically presented for a YouTube audience. He's verified. Take of that what you will. And he also seems to be setting up some discipleship uh, ministries as well. That's good. Uh, his website, alanparr.com, has a statement of belief. So let's go through them and see if anything, uh, any red flags show up. The, regarding the scriptures, he believes that they are the verbal, inspired words of God, authoritative and without error in the original manuscripts. We would and agree he also, wholeheartedly, yeah. yeah. He believes the scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments are designed for practical instruction in faith and in conduct. So far, so great. The Godhead, he affirms the Trinity, the person work of Jesus Christ. He believes that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came to the world that he might manifest God to men, fulfill prophecy, and become the redeemer of a lost world. To this end, he was born of the Virgin Mary, received a human body, and a sinless human nature without ceasing to be God. So far, so continues to be good. We believe that in infinite love for the lost, he voluntarily accepted his Father's will and became divinely provided, uh, the divinely provided sacrificial lamb, took away the sins of the world, no heresy there. We believe he rose from the dead in the same body, though glorified, in which he had lived and died, and that his resurrected body is the pattern of body we will ultimately be given and will all be given to all believers. Continuing. We believe that on departing earth, he was accepted by his Father, and his acceptance is a final assurance to us, and his redeeming work was perfectly accomplished. God bless you. We believe he became head over all things to the church, which is his body. In his ministry, he does not cease to intercede and be an advocate for the saved. Great. Regarding the Spirit, they believe he's the third person of the Trinity. That's good. And that every believer receives grace from God in the form of a spiritual gift, which enables him to function as a member of the body of Christ. Notice he doesn't say specific gifts. He says a gift. That's great. Uh, the personality of Satan, he believes it's a literal being. And regarding salvation, it's not the result of any human works. He believes that the explicit message of Jesus is to those he has saved, is to make Christ known to the whole world, and this is the purpose of the church through the individuals within it. Good. We believe that local churches gather together for the practical instruction in scriptures, for fellowship with God and other believers, and for corporate witness to the unsaved world. Our common spiritual growth is to grow towards Christ's likeness. Anything wrong here? No. All right. Regarding the rapture, he is pre-tribulation. That's great. Eternal state, he believes that at death, the spirits and souls of those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus for salvation pass immediately into his presence, where they remain in conscious bliss, so no soul sleep, until the resurrection of the glorified body when Christ comes for his own, wherein the soul and body reunited shall be associated forever with him in glory. Seems like he has a lot in common with most Calvary groups. And then the responsibility of believers is to walk in the Spirit, separate themselves from worldly practice, and witnessing by life and word truths of Scripture, and that all believers will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ and rewarded based on their faithful obedience to him in this life. Uh, if we're going to limit to the distinctives, uh, I wouldn't find anything wrong with them in any way whatsoever. However, that's what we read on paper, Mac. Uh, always, even if you see everything good as far as checking the boxes are concerned, also listen. Don't just read what they say about themselves. Hear what they say. And if he continues to follow and track with Scripture, then God bless him. I'm sure there will be things that we'll disagree with on minor issues, but as far as the majors and what he presents on his website, I would give him two thumbs up. However, because I haven't watched his ministries exclusively, I encourage you and everyone listening to read through his distinctives, check the verses he uses to support them, and then from that format, continue to listen with open ears, not just an open mind. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, I think uh, his uh, doctrinal statement is a, is a solid one. Um, but uh, again, uh, you uh, have to be a Berean. Acts seventeen eleven says the Berean believers are more noble minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with eagerness. Sounds like that's where you're at, Mac, which is great. But they also searched the scriptures daily to find out if these things were really so. Well, what things? Even the things the Apostle Paul uh, and Silas were teaching at that particular time. So if the scriptures commend the Bereans for checking up on Paul and Silas, boy, uh, we really need to be very uh, careful to be not critical in terms of spirit, you know, not caustic, uh, but uh, critical consumers in that uh, just because something is on the air or broadcast, uh, doesn't mean that we should put away our discernometer. Shouldn't put away your discernometer when you watch this broadcast or you attend uh, services at Calvary Christian Fellowship. We'd say the same thing about us. Uh, remember, the most important thing is we want to hear from the Lord. We want to embrace His truth and uh, keep uh, our eyes open because uh, sometimes uh, clever counterfeits can sneak in, as Jude said, unnoticed. Uh, and, uh, and we have to be very careful about that, especially in this media age. All right. Um, question from Horatio who wants to know, what language will we speak in heaven? Are we told? We're really not told. There are some uh, who believe that uh, we will speak Hebrew uh, because this was obviously the uh, language uh, of the people that God chose as his uh, chosen people. Uh, there are those who see the fact that uh, God's dealings with the world are going to center around Israel and the fulfillment of those promises in the thousand-year reign. So, Horatio, I think it's probably uh, a likely thing that uh, Hebrew will be spoken. But it's very interesting, even in the thousand-year reign in passages like Zechariah 14, we see that other nations are still going to be alive and kicking during that time. Egypt is uh, uh, identified uh, as one of those nations. And so it wouldn't be surprising to me if there are uh, other languages uh, that are being spoken during that time, uh, we are told that uh, in the book of Acts chapter 17 that uh, God determined and prepared uh, the, uh, the predetermined habitations of different people groups. He made us from one blood, but uh, put us on different places so that we could glorify him in unique and special ways. Even in the, uh, the uh, eternal state, we are told that the nations of the world will come into the New Jerusalem and bring their honor and glory to it. So uh, whether uh, we all speak one language, whether there are different languages, I do believe that there's going to be perfect unity. There isn't going to be any kind of division that is going on there. Uh, perhaps uh, the uh, Eden-like conditions that we see the world return to uh, during that time will uh, reverse even the uh, confounding of the languages that went on at Babel. Uh, as a result of man's rebellion. And uh, we will all be able to uh, understand each other perfectly. Perhaps God will uh, bless us with that uh, ability, just like he's going to uh, bless uh, creatures in this world to have an adjustment. Uh, there won't be any uh, carnivorous creatures uh, preying upon one another. Even the carnivores themselves uh, will uh, be vegetarian during that particular time. So who knows? That's Maybe God will give us the, uh, the uh, ability uh, to be able to know and understand languages, uh, much like uh, the uh, gift of tongues uh, demonstrated in Acts chapter 2. Yeah, I don't think we'll speak languages. I think we'll communicate. Um, Yari wants to know, uh, will we forget 
what the old creation was like in heaven. Um, you cite a few passages, Isaiah 40, let me just make sure I got your references right, 43 and verse 18, which reads, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. We'll read the rest of that statement because it's not a full sentence. And then Isaiah 65, and let's uh, note verse 17, it says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. So will there essentially be a uh, men in black neuralizer thing that God will do on those in the new creation? Or is this both of these things talking about something different? Well, I think it's talking about seeing uh, the world through God's perspective. It's like people ask the question, you know, will I know my loved ones in heaven? I think Don Stewart had a great answer to that. Uh, I don't think we're going to suddenly become dumber than we are right now when we're in heaven. Uh, <laughs> I think we will know and understand each other. When we see uh, the Mount of Transfiguration uh, taking place in Matthew chapter 17, Moses and Elijah appear in a glorious form, but no name tags were necessary. Uh, there were no introductions necessary. Jesus said, oh, guys, by the way, uh, Moshe, Eli, uh, this is Peter, James, and John, you know, etc. They instantly understood who these two were, how they'd never seen them. Uh, there weren't photographs of uh, Moses and Elijah, but in the glorified state, they were as Moses-y and Elijah-y as they could possibly be. And so there was that understanding. Now you flip-flop that, and that's where people have some problems. Uh, they say, well, if I'll know uh, my loved ones in heaven, will I remember, say, my loved ones that didn't go to heaven? How do we respond to that? Well, I guess like you started the answer with, is it going to be seen through God's eyes or our hopeless perspective? Because when we lose hope, it's as true in any circumstance. Something goes wrong with the economy, something goes wrong in politics, something goes on with the weather, something goes wrong with us circumstantially. We default to a mindset that excludes God from the equation. The entirely. horizontal, not the heavenly. Yeah, yeah, because in that mindset, we ultimately see, you know, I've been trying to live for God. It's just not working out. Is everything that I've sacrificed up until this point truly worth it? Now, when we see that loss of purpose or loss of fulfillment, this draining of joy, if you will, it's ultimately setting us up for the kind of mindset that we are locked into in this fallen sinful state. When we look at the heavenly state and we're compared to literally the angels as far as our perspective of things is concerned, there are two defaults that we work with. Is first, you are holy and righteous, O Lord, who yeah. was and is and is to come, the book of Revelation says. For you have judged these things. Your wrath has been manifested on the earth. And that's not only repeated by the angels, but also by the elders, those who are literal glorified human beings. Now, when we can talk about that perhaps another time, but note the point that's being made here. If we build up this idea that, oh, well, hypothetically, what if I could imagine you put yourself with a fallen human perspective, a fallen human nature, and fallen human variables into a heavenly equation, then your calculator is going to end up with a format error because you're putting yeah. uh, letters into a place where numbers belong, if you follow the illustration. If, on the other hand, you'd say, okay, I don't live in heaven. I'm not directly in the presence of God where he manifests his glory, that sense of heaven. Yeah. I could be in the atmosphere on a plane, but I'm not in heaven. Right. So if that's then my working knowledge, then I have to acknowledge my limitations. I don't fully appreciate God's goodness. I don't 
know whether my loved ones or not have ultimately come to a relationship with God, whether that consolation will be in place, and I don't know what kind of perspective I would have in a glorified state because I'm not glorified, but I can work with what I do know. In a perfect human nature, completely in line with God's character and heart, what did we see modeled for us when Jesus was on this earth? when he saw the death of the ones he loved. Not separation from them forever, but the physical death Lazarus, of Lazarus, for instance. Yeah, yeah. John chapter 11. What was his response? It was rightful grief. It was proper grief. It was hurt, but with hope. Because notice the conversations that followed with his two sisters was one of reminding them, I am the resurrection and the life. Right. It was constantly aware of the goodness of God is sufficient, even in the face of horrible things. Now let's take that little grain, saying, I'm not like Jesus yet, but that is one of the things that I probably will reflect in him when I am made into his image. Well, let's apply that to the heavenly scene. Will I still be capable of caring about my loved ones, even if they're ultimately separated from him? Yes. Will I be capable of expressing grief or sorrow, even in light of ultimate hope? Jesus did, so yes. Will I still recognize the goodness of God as sufficient and be able to live even in light of that hurt? Remember Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And this is also uh, pre repeated, I guess, in Revelation chapter 7 as well. So note the point, Yari, we're working with a, I guess, a flawed calculator. You're trying to do a calculus with something intended for addition and multiplication. But if on the other hand, we'd say, what do we have to work with? We have the model of Jesus and his reaction to these things. And for whatever reason, he isn't floored by the idea that when he died for the whole world, not everyone would receive it. His consolation was, God is just, who would know him better than him. <laughs> yeah. But if, on the other hand, I uh, basically just get into hypotheticals and what-if-isms and read my fallen nature into it, then you get into conversations like, well, what if I sin again in heaven? What if I get bored in heaven? What if, what if, what if? Let's work with what we do know the heavenly state will be like with Jesus' attitude and perspective, and uh, we got something to look forward to. Yeah, Psalm 16 and verse 11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, That's going to be our experience in heaven. But uh, joy is more than just circumstantial happiness. Joy, uh, I think C.S. Lewis called it the heaven-centered emotion because it's not something that excludes us from experiencing tough things or difficult times in life. As a matter of fact, the greatest experiences of joy I've had in my life have been those times where you see the goodness of God after uh, you've kind of been road hard and put away wet, to use the old expression. Uh, And I think that joy that we have in heaven is going to have that same quality to it. It's not, as you mentioned, Sean, going to be like our minds are wiped uh, or, you know, the neuralizer from uh, uh, the uh, Men in Black movies is going to just blank out any uh, remembrance of those things. But when the Bible says those things will not be remembered or or brought to mind in the book of Isaiah, what it's saying is that's not going to be our focus. That's uh, it's not that we aren't going to be capable of remembering it, but it's going to be, we're going to be so blown away and amazed uh, by the goodness of God uh, that it, everything else is going to take second uh, place. Uh, you know, sometimes I guess it's just the way my brain works, uh, Sean, but, uh, you know, I, I think of the questions that I'd like to ask God when I get to heaven. But, uh, you know, although we're not told 
uh, uh, every detail about what it's going to be like when we see the Lord face to face. The one thing we are told is now we see through a glass darkly, 1 Corinthians 13, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I'll know fully, even as I'm fully known. I'm not going to have to sit around and say, God, could you please explain that predestination versus free will thing? Or, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Could you please, you know, explain all of that to me? I'm going to see the Lord and all my questions are going to be answered. I'm going to see the Lord and all my griefs are going to be comforted. I'm going to see the Lord and every tear is going to be wiped from my eye. Uh, Not because I'm somehow gone blank on these other things, but kind of like that definition of joy. You know, uh, I I remember when I finished my first marathon, a 26.2-mile race, uh, I had just such an exhilaration when I crossed that finish line, Uh, not because I felt great at that particular moment, but because, uh, you know, everybody kind of hits the wall about the 18-mile mark. It's just that last 8.2 miles that you've just got to get on through. But there was something just so exhilarating about having persevered through all of that and gotten to the finish line, and, you know, and just God answering my prayers. I want to quit or give up. Uh, that, that caused it to be an incredibly joyful moment uh, within my life. And I, I think when we see the Lord, uh, it's not going to be that we forget about the hardships that we went through or even the brokenhearted things or the difficult things. But we're going to see our Lord and uh, being in the presence of that ultimate victory is going to answer all the questions and dry all the tears. All right. Um, Boy, how do we phrase this? Uh, I've got a question, suppose in the form of, uh, I guess, uh, asking the question, does the Bible teach communism, the idea of distributing wealth equally to those who don't have much? Uh, Usually people would go to Acts chapter 4, where it says in verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And then it says, Joseph, who was named Barnabas by the apostles, which is son of encouragement, uh, having land sold it, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He was a positive example. Then Ananias and Sapphira, you know the rest. But the the question is, having all things in common, they sold their property, they gave to each other, laid at the apostles' feet, they distributed it. Uh, Big question gets raised, though, right? Was that intended to be, A, was that intended to be normative? No. Was that supposed to be the way the church was going to operate from that time onward? No, in fact, the very next chapter notes uh, complications where the calling of the apostles was impeded because they kept having to deal with all these squabbles. It also notes they weren't distributed the wealth equally. They were distributed as they had need. It also never notes the apostles were to model this form of government. There is a still submission taught by the apostle Paul to governing authorities. It also notes as well the idea that distributing to wealth of people equally as a solution for poverty or as a solution to greed, uh, first of all, failed within the first few minutes of its practice. But the second thing is when the Bible records something, it's not giving a model for a perfect society. It's noting what happened. And you've got to put that passage in Acts chapter 4 and, and, and 5 into its proper context. 
in that what was going on at that point? Well, you had all of these people who were pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost was one of three feasts that were considered mandatory. If you were above bar mitzvah age, you were expected, if you at all possibly could, to attend this particular feast. And so, you know, during this time, like Passover, Josephus talked about the uh, population of Jerusalem swelling to over a million people because of all the pilgrims who were there. Well, Pentecost would be another example of uh, one of those times, kind of like our snowbird season in Tucson, where everything gets uh, jammed up in a big-time hurry. Well, these individuals come to Jerusalem. A massive amount of them are brought to faith in Christ. And they want to stay on in order to be taught about their new faith. If there's ever any real challenge, it's not so much learning new things, which they were going to do, but unlearning the old things. And so uh, they wanted to stay on for a long period of time. Now, these were individuals who were on budgets just like we were. You know, for instance, you made a, a budget where you were going to go to San Diego for a week and then something extraordinary happened and you wanted to stay on for another month. Well, your finances would probably run out in a big-time hurry. So in order to facilitate the needs of these people in this extraordinary set of circumstances, people came and they sold property in an emergency kind of basis to meet those particular needs at that time. Why do we say this? Well, first of all, we never see this kind of practice commanded in the Scriptures. Uh, we are told that we are to be involved with giving, that giving is to be a part of uh, the Christian life, that we are to meet the needs uh, of those who are less fortunate. It is more blessed to give than to receive. There's no doubt about that. But as far as wealthy people taking their money or vaporizing it, uh, just as a matter of course, uh, in First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17 uh, we are told this, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, may lay hold on eternal life. Now, notice it doesn't say, oh, these rich people, they're in sin. No, it just says they're in a place where they can do good with the wealth and the resources that they have. Uh, you know, we, we go to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, uh, 9, and we see the Old Test- the New Testament standard of giving beautifully laid out there. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is always is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Now notice, we are to give as we purpose in our heart, not as we are coerced, not as if there was this one standard operating procedure saying, all right, come to the church, give us your TRW, and uh, we'll figure out exactly, um, you know, based on your Experian credit report, uh, how much we're going to take from you at this particular time. What? You aren't trusting God? No, it's up to an individual personally, right? 
Right, and it's not supposed to be your pastor's uh, ultimate responsibility to essentially be this enforced communist dictator, not to take all of your wealth and distribute as the Spirit leads him to do. With the blood of 50 million of our fellow Christians, communism has killed more believers in the last century than any other movement in history, noting Islam and paganism combined. Now, if we talk about the issue at hand of, well, doesn't it just sound so noble? Yes, if you make the assumption, and this is key, if you make the assumption that if given the proper resources, people will do what is good. If we pray for this world to fix itself to the point that God doesn't need to come back and that our problem is money, then the reality is we're dealing the underlying assumption that greed is the only sin. But if, on the other hand, we note it from God's perspective, what is the ultimate sin? It's pride. It's thinking that we can go without God, thinking that we are better than the people before us who have failed in their approach to communism. They just didn't distribute the wealth equally and, of course, resulted in the founding of the uh, gulags and the pogroms and so forth, the killing fields, and on it goes. When we're talking about this issue, if it seems to come across as personal, it's because it is. We don't want to have to be mass uh, murdered and exterminated if we can help it. We don't want to enforce policies that every single time they have been practiced in history have resulted in the starvation and utter annihilation of every single country that's put them into practice. If we say, well, they just didn't do it right, well, then we're making an assumption based on pride. If we make the claim that, well, this is good, you just are don't have enough faith. You need to read these things into the Bible. Well, let's even go back to the Old Old Testament, like Exodus Old Testament, and ask, even in the handling of finances, how does God desire us to do it? On a government basis, to trust leaders? I mean, who would be a better leader than Moses? To be led by the Spirit of God and handling wealth, right? This would be the perfect opportunity. And what greater project could you ever be a part of than building the tabernacle? Which is what we're going to get into. And if you can turn with me to Exodus 35, it's a very interesting mindset because the assumption of socialism and ultimately communism is that the government will distribute the wealth as it's needed to its citizens, not, of course, enrich itself and starve its population out, like always. Exodus 35 gives an interesting statement. Moses gathered the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, seventh day shall be a holy day to you, a Sabbath rest. Whoever does not work on it shall be put to death. You will not kill until any fire. Now, here's the point. Moses spoke to the congregation, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord, whoever is, not a citizen, of a willing heart. So it wasn't taxes. This was a free will offering. Right. Let him bring it as an offering to the Lord, gold, silver, bronze, purple, blue, and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, etc., etc., And note, this is what was needed for the construction of what? Not just their needs going forward, but a specific goal, the tabernacle. He goes on to describe them. In verse 20, it says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel weren't held at gunpoint until they did the right thing. They departed from the presence of Moses. They were given an opportunity to think through. Then in verse 21, it says what? Then everyone came whose heart, not universally, not based on citizenship, not because of oppressive tax programs, whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing, not coerced, they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all its service, for all the holy garments. And note, it says in verse 
uh, yeah, let's uh, let's go to chapter 36 and verse 2. Then Moses called Bezalel and Eliahib, and every gifted artisan whose heart was in which the Lord had put wisdom, the people would be working with this. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service, making for the sanctuary. And they continued to bring him freewill offerings every morning. Then all the craftsmen who were doing the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So notice this. Moses doesn't say, let's uh, build a bigger tabernacle. Well, let's uh, put it in a uh, welfare plan to make sure that we can provide for our people the way that apparently God, I mean Karl Marx, called us to. Now it says, God, Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done, indeed too much. We have a direct example in the Old and New Testament that based on necessity and with a specific goal in mind, individuals were given the liberty to do with their wealth what they willed. God would work on their hearts, not direct an oppressive leader into a failed system that would ultimately result in the death of nations and specifically of Christians. If it seems like we're taking this personally, it's because we are. We cannot even entertain this language because it coerces more people through honeyed words and paves the path to hell with these good intentions. If we make the assumption that, well, we just want to get rid of this greedy heart, we can't do that except on an individual basis by being generous. The Bible does not support the idea that, well, if the right policies are enforced, then the greedy will be prevented from being greedy by taking all their wealth through taxation. Yet, guess what? We're all rich according to the world standard. You'd be just as oppressed as I would, and neither of us make that much money, I assume. Yeah, I think there's some fundamental flaws uh, with uh, some people who have tried to advocate for Christian communism. First of all, communism believes that man is, uh, at the core, perfectible. Uh, that a utopia is uh, possible here on earth uh, based upon us simply getting the system right. Well, one thing I've discovered down through time in Christian circles and outside of Christian circles is it's not the system that, uh, that makes things right. It, it, it's really the heart that you bring to a system. And that's the key issue with communism. Communism believes that the perfectibility of man is possible through the actions of the state. Uh, not through the work of the true and living God. It is a completely man-centered, completely horizontal perspective. If you want a little ditty that will uh, let you know exactly what the tenets of communism are really all about, listen to John Lennon's song, Imagine, uh, and uh, the the overriding uh, message in this at that particular time in John Lennon's life, there's maybe some evidence that he repented later on, uh, was that we don't need God and that God and uh, believing in heaven is just keeping us from the uh, wonderful utopia we can build in the here and now. So any system, whether it's capitalism, whether it's communism, if you take God out of the equation, sooner or later that vacuum is going to get filled and it's not going to get filled in a good way. And the fruit of all that um, ends up uh, being demonstrated. So, all right. A uh, question from CP who wants to know what the term Maranatha spirit means. Uh, Maranatha means what? Yeah. Well, it's mentioned one time in the New Testament. It's found in the book of First Corinthians, chapter sixteen, and verse twenty-two. It says, and it's Paul wrapping up here, 
go on back. It says, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. With the church that is in their house, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. You know, it's really significant. Uh, It says uh, that uh, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. That's really the the, uh, place we all are, unless we come into a love relationship with Jesus. But then the next three words, O Lord, come, are really two words in the original language. Now, Paul's epistles, with this exception, were written in Greek. This is the exception in that Paul writes with his own hand in Aramaic. Aramaic was, uh, if you will, the uh, language of the street of that time. It was the language that the average person spoke in that day and age. And uh, the two words he uses that are translated, O Lord, come, are the Aramaic words, Maran Atha. That is what we would know today as Maranatha. Now, when we talk about that Maranatha spirit, uh, CP, I hearken back to my time uh, when I first became a Christian in the Jesus movement days, where uh, there was a real focus on the fact that Jesus could come at any moment. People would have t-shirts with the word Maranatha on them. They would have Maranatha on bumper stickers. They would have Maranatha stickers on their Bibles and uh, prophecy uh, messages were abounding at that particular time. So uh, the term Maranatha goes back to all of that and with something that Paul uh, obviously believed in passionately. He wrote it uh, in words that any and everyone could ever understand uh, and uh, wrote it in his own hand as that uh, closing greeting. And the more we keep looking up, the better off we're going to be. Yeah, and if you want an example of it in action, it's Revelation 20's end in a nutshell. Come, Lord. We have that hopeful expectation of him. Well, the music is starting, so we want to thank you all for the time that you spent listening to us. It's been a great time, yeah. Our study uh, midweek in the book of Revelation chapter 10 will be upcoming. Thanks for Pastor Bowen. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.